I'm Tommy Salmons. This is Year Zero. Uh, today, with the Supreme Court all in the news cycle due to the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, we have attorney and libertarian Michael Harris on the phone. What's going on, Michael? Oh, doing well. Enjoying the cooler weather here in Texas and uh, happy to talk to you and whomever may be listening. You know, it's, yeah, it's funny. I I'm actually was just looking at the temperature. I'm in Kansas. It's 86 here. I was like, wow, it's warmer here than it was when I left Texas. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it's, it's probably a little bit cooler than that right now. But uh, anyway, so uh, happy to come on and uh, talk to you about the, the current events with the uh, Supreme Court now suddenly uh, in the news with the i'm not going to say sudden death of justice ruth bader ginsburg to be honest with you i thought they would put her in cryogenic freeze till after the election but uh <laughs> yeah yeah i figured they would just act like nothing had happened you know just kind of like, yeah i don't know i don't know you know but i did what? find it uh did you find it as interesting as i did when they were uh they were saying that her dying wish was that they that she not be replaced until a new president were installed like, i was like okay so so you're basically telling me that her dying wish was that if trump wins this election that we just go with eight justices until 2024 Right, well, that wouldn't surprise me at all. So, yeah, yeah, yeah okay, yeah, the next president, yeah. I didn't know this kind of like I've heard stories that in uh, some third world countries that the the the, the president. I heard one time, I think it was Pakistan, where the president in their will said that my son inherited the political party. Like it was their personal possession that they could give it to. They could put it in their will of who got to inherit power. I, I guess so, I, I guess all you can do is try. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's yeah. it's well, like, oh well, I'm not gonna be around to to get to 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 take the needling and get, you know, get ridiculed. So, you know, like whatever. <laughs> well, as I've told many a uh, court appointed criminal defendant, you know, worst thing they can do is say no. Yeah. So, yeah. Don't That's hurt it. to ask. Yeah, never does. But so you, uh, you obviously you sent me some talking points and some uh, some notes here. So you have uh, some pretty interesting thoughts on the Supreme Court. Um, I want to start off with uh, with Marbury versus Madison, and that's a good place to start with the Supreme Court. Yeah, and and how that has politicized the Supreme Court you know, since 1801. Can you give us a little breakdown of what that case was and, and break down exactly what was going on around that time? Oh, I could spend an entire hour talking about nothing but Marbury versus Madison. Uh, <laughs> but it just a brief uh, rundown that when they created the Constitution, they wanted there to be an independent judiciary, but they really had no idea of what they would that would look like. The uh, The founders were good historians when it came to Greek Roman history it's pretty obvious that they looked to the Roman Republic for what they were hoping to create but the Roman Republic really didn't have an independent judiciary that was something they inherited from the British so they weren't real clear on what it was going to look like 
And so when they actually, when they created the Supreme Court, uh, basically when they wrote the constitution, they said there would be one Supreme Court and lesser inferior courts as the legislature chose to create them. So very broad language didn't really go into detail about how it was supposed to work because they really just were creating this on the fly. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was such a lowly thought of position, actually, that one of the original Supreme Court justices left the Supreme Court so he could run for the state legislature, mm. which shows you how little they thought of actually being the Supreme Court justice. Right. Uh, well, and what, was it Jefferson that that had written about the Supreme Court, and he was he had he had said that it was not supposed to be the the final interpreter of the Constitution; that that was supposed to be the states, the state legislatures that were supposed to. Uh, Hey, Boogie, calm down, buddy. Sorry. Uh, the That was supposed to be the state legislatures that were actually the interpreters of the Constitution. A am I correct on that? That is one of the things that Jefferson, I mean, when they came out with the Alien and Sedition Acts under the John Adams administration, which were blatantly unconstitutional, I mean, there's no dispute about that. Even Alexander Hamilton's kind of like, hey, this violates the Constitution. And it's kind of like, what's the response to it? And uh, Jefferson and Madison came up with the response that, well, the states should be able to declare federal laws like the Alien and Sedition Acts unconstitutional, which, don't get me wrong, I have a great deal of respect for Thomas Jefferson, but basically consistency wasn't one of his strong suits. I mean, basically he told the Virginia state you know, legislature is kind of like, hey, there's nothing the Constitution says the state of Virginia can't throw people in jail for printing bad stuff about me. Uh, <laughs> so uh, he didn't have exactly clean white robes himself, but there was a tremendous controversy. And I, I think if you think the election of 2020 is bad, you should really go back and look at the history of the election of 1800. That one there was actually a lot of people who were seriously like, hey, is the United States of America going to survive the election of 1800? And uh, it, it wound up that uh, Thomas Jefferson and his faction won the election in a landslide. They were going to become, Jefferson, of course, was going to be president, that his party was going to control both houses of Congress, and so John Adams and his Federalist buddies is kind of like, okay, what do we do now? And so basically they decided, you know what, we're just going to pack the, the judicial system before Jefferson and his cronies take over. So they created uh, a Judiciary Act of their own, which basically led them to pack the Supreme Court. And they, and John Adams, he made John Marshall the, sec uh, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Ironically, John Marshall was Thomas Jefferson's cousin, but they were far from close. There was a lot of animosity between those two. From what I'm gathered, John Marshall thought that Thomas Jefferson cheated his mother out of her inheritance or something along. I don't know the details of it, but it was pretty yeah. clear that Thomas Jefferson and John Marshall, there was bad blood between them. Right. And so that was one of the events that led to the case Marbury versus Madison, which I could spend an entire hour talking on where 
this John Marshall basically said that we, the Supreme Court, have the power and authority to declare federal statutes unconstitutional. And uh, Jefferson, of course, did not like that. He was angry about that. But basically, it stood all this time. Uh, but yes, the I mean, the whole thing of appointing John Marshall as the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court was political from the start. Everybody knew it was political. Everybody knew why John Adams was doing it. Uh, ironically, uh, Marbury versus Madison actually weakened the position. Show you kind of John Marshall's brilliance. He publicly looked like he was weakening their position, while in reality he was strengthening their position. I mean, as a as a as a piece of political gamesmanship, it's absolutely brilliant. But it has uh, stood for all these decades. And this uh, is this was kind of like this was kind of the first um, evidence of the Supreme Court as we know of it today, where it's become this you know, political hand grenade used, you know, between the two parties to to kind of bludgeon your opponent in the head. Is, is, am I kind of getting that right? Well, that was really kind of the, uh, the first inklings of, hey, we're here, we're not going away. This is, uh, you know, so this is, this is the role that we've given ourselves. But the main, the main point was with Marbury versus Madison was the Supreme Court is like, hey, we're not going away. You can't get rid of us. You got to you got to learn to deal with us one way or another. And uh, very few president, actually the only presidents that have openly defied the U.S. Supreme Court was Andrew Jackson when Supreme Court said that uh, they couldn't use the army to remove the Native Americans from southeastern states. Andrew Jackson just basically said, up yours, I'm going to do it anyway, <laughs> right. uh, and did it. Uh, now, during the Civil War, the Supreme Court told Abraham Lincoln he could not suspend the writ of habeas corpus, and Abraham Lincoln did it anyway to prosecute uh, alleged spies. Now, Lincoln wasn't really interested in big, huge show trials, so he didn't make a big public display of uh, challenging the Supreme Court. Uh, Andrew Jackson, his, Andrew Johnson, I'm getting my Andrews wrong here. Andrew Johnson, his, uh, he had his problems with the court, but he had his problems with everything after, the, you know, when he took power over after Lincoln. Yeah. Uh, the only other president that openly challenged the Supreme Court was Franklin Delano Roosevelt with his New Deal agenda that he wanted. Right. The Supreme Court ruled it was unconstitutional. And uh, Franklin Roosevelt's solution to that problem is that, well, I'm just going to create six extra Supreme Court justices to say it is constitutional. Yeah, didn't he want to get uh, the number up to like 16 or something like that at one point? Uh, I'm pretty certain he was sick. His argument was is that uh, there, he should be able to appoint a new Supreme Court justice to balance out any Supreme Court justice that's over the age of 70. And I think that currently at, at the, that point in time, I think there were six. I don't know exactly what the numbers are. Oh, okay. But that, that created such an uproar that even Franklin Roosevelt had to back down on it publicly. 
Uh, however, what's not widely reported and known to this day was that the Supreme Court justices kind of looked at each other as kind of like, okay, you know what, we kind of see the handwriting on the wall here of where this is headed. So two of the Supreme Court justices suddenly had some massive revel revelation that suddenly Roosevelt's New Deal was constitutional and changed their position. And so that kind of averted the crisis, quote unquote, crisis. Right. Uh, now it's absolutely destroyed the interstate commerce clause, which uh, I spent another hour talking about that. But, uh, you know, you know, but my main point is, is that there always has been a political element to the Supreme Court appointments and the way they did their jobs. Uh, I think it has gotten really gone too far. Yeah. Well, and that was one of the things I thought of, I was thinking of yesterday. It was like, I was, I don't, I don't remember who I was listening to uh, talk about it, but I just started thinking, I was like, these people are supposed to be interpreting law, like not, not uh, making political, political statements or being on the side of, you know, one political side of the aisle or the other. They're supposed to determine whether or not the United States government has violated the rights of American citizens, you know? And, and so I'm, I'm like this, this, none of this makes any sense to me. Like you would think that just the average person seeing laws being politicized in such a, such a heavy manner and with such heavy handedness and such openness that they would say, this isn't right. Like, the legal system shouldn't work in a political manner. It shouldn't depend on what side of the aisle you're on or what your opinions are. It should, it should basically be down the, down the middle. Um, are your, are citizens rights being trampled on or not? You know, well, I can't, I can't tell you that was a big debate between uh, after the uh, election of uh, George W. Bush Jr. and uh, Al Gore between Justice Souter and Justice Kennedy. Uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and say Justice Souter is one of my all-time favorite justices. And he said, hey, we should not be getting involved in poli you know, partisan political struggles like this. Uh, this is not our area. We need to totally stay out of this. Uh, Justice Kennedy's position was as well. The led, I agree that it should be the legislature's place to do this, but the legislature's not stepping up and doing that. So therefore, we have to step up and do it. Uh, I, I will say there is some validity to Justice Kennedy's. We've had far worse justices than Kennedy. Okay, I mean, but uh, I, I disagree with him. I think Souter was right that really the legislature. We have we have come to view the Supreme Court as kind of like the super legislature, that they hand down these uh, these uh, commandments like they're from like the gods on Mount Olympus, telling us this is the way it is, and when they get involved in legislative questions, they do do ultimately they do far more harm than good. That was Scalia in particular used to say. You really don't want to have nine unelected justices resolving 
these type of issues. It really should be much more appropriately handed down by handled by the le the local legislature, and the more local, the better. And I disagree with Justice Scalia on a lot of things, but that I agree with him. You, you find out when you go to law school and you start reading Supreme Court opinions that pretty much every Supreme Court justice, you're going to agree with them on some things and you're actually going to hate them on other things. That's right. kind of just the nature of the beast, to be honest with you. Yeah. Well, and, you know, there's been this kind of um, idea for I don't know, I guess as long as I can remember that conservatives are constitutionalists. And I don't consider myself a constitutionalist uh, because I consider myself an agorist. And so there's a lot I have a problem with with the Constitution. But that but beside that, if you start really reading the Constitution, and interpreting the Constitution and just read the language that's in the Constitution, it's almost like this kind of even down the middle split that sometimes the Democrats are on the right side of the Constitution and sometimes the conservatives are on the right side of the Constitution, depending on the issue, you know, depending on their, it really boils down to them being, whether they're or not, they're being moral police. Because the Constitution didn't seem to get into morality. It was more, it, it, it seems to me like it was more of an intellectual document of this is what the correct function of government is, and this is what government cannot do. And so oh, it was designed to limit the, go the federal government. That's, that was the whole purpose when they, when they decided to scrap the Articles of Confederation and replace it with something else uh it's kind of kind of like you know you know what exactly is this new federal government going to be doing and i i don't see how you can read the constitution as anything except the limitation on on government action right now i mean i am a constitutionalist and i will freely admit there's disagreements i think where the constitution is wrong I mean, most notably that crazy three-fifths person clause. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, having to count slaves as three-fifths of a person. Right. Uh, you know, that uh, was the most blatant uh, thing. That but is, I, I think any particular justice you come to, like I said, you're going to find things that you agree with them on. You're going to find things that you disagree with them on. Right. Well, I, I guess what my point was, though, is that it seems to me where both parties or diverge from the constitution is when they start trying to incorporate morality into the legislative process right so like a, a major uh, one of the major issues that we see constantly is the war on drugs and i yes. i see no way shape or form to read the constitution and say that the war on drugs is constitutional. It makes, it, it just, I don't see that. I don't see where that is, but a conservative will tell you, well, yeah, but this person is, you know, a horrible person doing these things that this, that, and the other. Okay. That's fine. You can have your moral sentiments, but that's not what the constitution is. The constitution is not the Bible. You know, so we're not having this is not going to sit here and, and, and give you moral clarification and, and, you know, moral backing to create laws that curb 
people's you know, personal behaviors and personal choices. That's not what the Constitution is there to do. It is there to limit the powers of government, you know, not limit the the powers of the people. So that's well, always one thing that I've looked at. On the uh, on the Democrat side, you have other things, you know, like like gun control and things that are more obviously, you know, against the Constitution. But um, so that I guess that's kind of where I was going, that one party is not really more constitutional than the other party. Oh, absolutely not. And I've, I've gotten to the point now where I call them red team and blue team. Uh, and uh, yeah, there's plenty of hypocrisy. I, actually, I'm kind of enjoying watching the current hypocrisy of the uh, the red team senators now saying that, the oh, well, picking Ruth Bader Ginsburg replacement is completely different than picking, you know, Anthony Scalia's replacement, it is kind of like it's a bunch of bull. It's kind of like, you know, no, we control the Senate, so we have the power to block right. Obama's choice. We have the power to approve Donald Trump's choice. And that's and that. Kind of, <laughs> and, and to me, they'd be much better off. And I've the only two I've heard was uh, form, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie and uh, campaign strategist Carl Rove, who basically is kind of like, you know, it's just politics, and don't kid yourself that if the Democrats controlled the Senate, they would do the exact same thing. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, and so. that, but that shows you, that does show you, you had one of the first notes you have on, on, on here is the current seems completely broken, you know? And, and, yeah. and so we're not really looking at, you know, who's the best you know, who's the most constitutional justice. We're looking at who's on my team, which, which justice holds my, holds my beliefs and my ideals. And I know they come out and they give lip service. We want an originalist and a textualist and this, that, and the other, you know, but if you wanted an originalist and a textualist and, and, and you're, a, and you're nominating someone who op openly says, we're not going to revisit precedents set in the past. Well, then, Obviously, you don't want originalist and a textualist because there, there is is blatantly there are there are cases of the past that are blatantly unconstitutional that probably should be revisited. Oh, that's uh, my my all time favorite uh, the, uh, the the Korematsu case during World War II, where the uh, U.S. government basically said if you're uh, if you're of Japanese descent, we can take you away from your house and we can lock you up in an internment camp indefinitely for the duration of war because you're a security threat right. by the mere fact that you are of Japanese ancestry. And uh, the Korematsu case was when the Supreme Court said that, uh, yeah, they can do that. Right. And, uh, that's, that, and it, it's never been overturned. People think because the government paid reparations to the families uh, of these Japanese interns that the court overturned it and and said, oh, well, that, well, the United States was wrong. No, it was never overturned. Actually, you're wrong. It, it was very recently, uh, either last year or year before, uh, they, they when the debate over uh, Trump's immigration ban, the Chief Justice Robert did put it in his opinion that this smacked of Kurama, the Kuramatsu case, which has basically been, uh, I think his exact words were a disgraceful stain on American jurisprudence. Mm -hmm. And we hereby repudiate Kur Kuramatsu. So it, it has been officially now 
repudiated oh, okay. by the Supreme Court. Okay. Very, very recently, and it didn't get a lot of publicity. Yeah, you never you never hear the the mainstream media or Team Blue senators, Team Red senators, ask judicial nominees, gee, how do you feel about the Kuramatsu case? Yeah. Uh, you, know, you know, you you never hear questions like that. Right. Well, and, uh, they do like, they do like, uh, you know, being able to, to expand uh, their, their free labor via the 13th Amendment. So they're not going to ask too many questions whenever it starts getting yeah they don't they don't ask you it's kind of like you know gee the the words in the constitution the first second and fourth amendment say the right and the right the people and uh do you think that the word the right of the people should mean the same thing for the first amendment and second amendment and the fourth amendment uh you never hear that question do you no you know uh so and like like i said to me the the system has become too political. And there was a uh, famous quote from one famous Supreme Court Justice, uh, Frank Furter, who said that if the law is nothing but politics, then Hitler has won. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I think there is right now, we are coming dangerously close to the position where uh, the law is nothing but politics. Well, and it's I, funny. I, I've complained about this several times on my podcast. <laughs> I like talking about uh philosophy and in history that's that's kind of that's those are the things that are really interesting to me i don't really like politics but anytime i say something it comes across as political because now everything's political you can't talk about the history of the cia without somebody like accusing you of being political and i'm like i'm not trying to be political i'm telling you about some evils that the united states government was involved in in the past and that I don't know if they ever stopped it. <laughs> like, I'm not trying to be political here. I'm just trying to be honest with you, you know? Well, I can tell you that when I ran as the libertarian candidate for Texas attorney general, uh, I have a very low opinion of the current Texas attorney general, Ken Paxton. I mean, he's under indictment for Christ's sakes for violating the securities law and defrauding people. Uh, we have videotape of him stealing people's pens, uh, you know, yeah. and my, my argument I made is kind of like, look, to me, it's one thing when somebody who's a member of the House or the Senate or some bureau, you know, petty bureaucrat does that. But to me, the attorney general is the top law enforcement person. So when the top law enforcement person, whether it's a city, county, state, federal government, when the top law enforcement person shows they have no respect for obeying the law, what kind of message does that send to everybody else down the line? Right. So, yeah, I feel like the people who are at the very, very top, their behavior and their attitude towards the law sends a very clear message and signal to the rest of the people in the system. And so that's why I feel like the people at the very, very top have a duty uh to make the law something more than just petty politics and partisan uh, politics well absolutely and you and you offer up some solutions in in the notes i'm looking at um where where you had said something about advocating replacing supreme court nominees with a roto rotation oh uh, okay the nomination process with a circuit yeah. court uh rotation well yeah. for the record this wasn't my idea it's something that i heard from another 
another lawyer mm-hmm. is is that uh, you know rather than having a specific set of justices and there's absolutely nothing magical about the number nine by the way uh, that's just what we've currently fallen in on and if you want me to go into more details about why we have nine justices I'll be happy to but my the, uh, the like I said to me the, the the current system of picking Supreme Court justice is totally broken mm-hmm. uh, I don't see any hope for repairing it uh, if I had the power to do it what I would do is say okay you know what we've got 13 separate circuit courts of appeals in the federal court system uh, we can pick one justice from each of the system and say the okay you know what you're getting elevated for the year 2021 justice tommy Salmonsberger is going to be on the supreme court uh, he serves his term from the fifth circuit court of appeals for example which is where you and i currently live mm-hmm. uh, then year next year or the year after that justice michael ray harris gets promoted tommy justice tam tommy salmons goes back to new orleans to sit on the fifth circuit court of appeals justice michael ray harris gets moved up to the supreme court to serve a term two three years whatever mm-hmm. then he goes back down and somebody else so there's a rotation basis and as i read the constitution there's absolutely nothing that would be unconstitutional about that the Supreme, the, the circuit court justices are nominated by the president, approved by the Senate, just exactly like, or should just be exactly like uh, Supreme Court justices. And uh, to me, overall, I think that would be a much better way, be far less politics involved in it. And uh, that would be a better way for picking Supreme Court justices. Right, well, well, and in, the, in a system, of that nature you would uh you would definitely have you would have more um there i guess there would be more influence on the you know the the circuit court judges that are being picked so there would be i don't know if you would i don't know if it would get rid of the politic the uh politicization because you know then whenever a circuit you know whenever the circuit court has an opening in, in the president's, you know, picking a judge for the fifth circuit court, then it's going to be a big deal. You know what I'm saying? Well, it will be a bigger deal of who the circuit court justices are, but I don't think you'll have this absolute. The meltdown over. Yeah. Over, uh, you know, like a virtual meltdown about, uh, you know, is this person going to overturn Roe versus Wade or is this person going to uphold Roe versus Wade? When the truth of the matter is Roe versus Wade is a nearly 50 year old opinion that really hasn't solved anything at all. So, so, but it, it's something that totally energizes the political base of the red team and the blue team. Well, I read, okay. I read Roe versus Wade one time and, and, and it's been, it's been a few years, but if I remember correctly, that overturning Roe versus Wade is a really bad idea because it because there it specifies in the opinion that the legal authority of parents over their children and that so so it was kind of like a mixed bag. 
and that abortion was just a small piece of it. Am I am I remembering? It's, that it's, a, it's an absolute mess of an opinion. First of all, it's very important to point out that Justice Blackman had previously uh, worked for the Mayo Clinic. All right. Okay. He it's it's and he's it's come out. It wasn't. He really was more concerned about protecting doctors. Okay. He okay. Did, he really didn't give a damn about women. I'm sorry. I mean, it it was never intended to protect women. It was intended to protect doctors from being prosecuted for criminal uh, offenses for performing abortions. That was really his purpose for coming out with Roe versus Wade to begin with. Al, to me, I mean, first of all, let's be clear. We're ha you have a discussion about whether or not abortions are gonna be legal or illegal, okay? I got a newsflash for you and your listeners. Women are gonna have abortions irregardless of who is on the Supreme Court or what they rule, all right? So we, have, we're having a, we can have a, a debate about whether or not abortions should be legal. Uh, but when it comes to the opinion of Roe versus Wade, like I said, it was originally intended by Justice Blackman to protect his doctor buddies, not to protect women. Right. Okay. So we continue to have this debate about this case. You know, we don't sit around arguing about, uh, you know, Miranda versus Arizona, whether it was properly decided or Marbury versus Madison or any number of cases because those issues are resolved. We still have this debate is almost 50 years later about whether Roe versus Wade was properly decided, which to me, that's proof that they had no business even addressing it to begin with. I, you know, I tend to follow with Scalia on this, that it should be, it, it's an issue that should be decided by local state legislatures. Right. And we should just get it out of the federal courts altogether. Let, let, let the state legislatures decide that issue. Well, and part of the reason that I think that it is, is still being talked about 50 years later, because it is an easy emotional football for, the, as you put it, the red team and the blue team to throw around. And, oh, yeah. and mobilize the their voters and mobilize people to vote and their donors don't forget their donors they can get they can they can uh, convince a lot of people to write the, the party leaders can get people to write them contribution checks to quote unquote help them overturn Roe versus Wade or quote unquote help them uphold Roe versus Wade. I, I think that the leaders of both political parties know that, you know, this is this is kind of like what gets our base energized, our voters energized, and more importantly, our campaign contributors energized at this issue. And that's why I think that neither one of them have any interest in really addressing it, to be blatantly honest with you. Yeah, because I look at it kind of like a like a, I look at it very similar to the drug issue. OK, so. If women are going to get abortions, just like if people are going to do drugs, I would rather it be um, in the in the safest manner. <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> the safest manner possible. Ah, some got in my throat. <coughs> excuse me. All right. So I'd rather it be done in the safest and and healthiest manner possible if it is if it's going to happen. That being said, if you want to to curb the amount of abortions that people are getting, you have to look at what drives the number of abortions that people get. A lot of it is is um, lack of education on contraceptives, um, 
sometimes it's lack of availability uh, of contraceptives for, you know, younger people that don't maybe not don't want their parents to know that they're sexually active. And then another issue, it would be poverty that that people in an extremely impoverished situation look at the look at the possibility of raising a child in in a functioning household and in a healthy household as impossible and they know that they can go have the abortion done and it's you know they they're all these crowdsourcing methods and all this funding that are going to Planned Parenthood um, that allows them to to get this done. So if you want to solve the abortion problem, you have to figure out what is creating the the environment for the abortions. You know what I'm saying? And you solve you you solve it at the root. You don't solve it at at the at the solution. It goes back, and I I like to quote this because it's. It's so important that people understand this. And I, this is kind of the way I look at, um, you know, Social Security or any entitlement benefits that, that people are getting, whether it's welfare or whatever, is Robert Higgs' quote, where he said, the government will break your leg and then offer you a crutch and say, see, what, were you, what would you do without us? Well, you can't, you can't take the crutch. You take, try to take the crutch, people are going to get offended. They're going to get defensive. What you have to figure out is how to stop the breaking of the leg in the first place so that the person never needs the crutch. And so that's where I think people miss completely miss the argument and miss the subject that is really important whenever you're talking about the abortion subject. Oh, it's purely emotional. And uh, I can tell you that when I ran for attorney general of Texas, I was surprised that that's overwhelmingly I got asked about it over and over and over again. My position was always the same, that it should be an issue decided by the state legislature. And uh, like I said to me, that the fact the fact that we're still arguing about Roe versus Wade almost 50 years after it came down is proof that to me that the federal courts is not, we're not accomplishing anything at all by continuing to look upon the Supreme Court as this kind of super legislature that decides these issues. Now, in fairness, I think Justice Kennedy's position that current. Okay, yeah, well, Justice Kennedy's position is, is that uh, while he agreed that it's better for the legislatures to address these issues, currently legislatures were not stepping up and doing it. And so therefore his position is, is that it just, by de facto falls to us on the Supreme Court to step up and do it. Uh, it's been, if you, people talk about, you know, our founders, and I, I think I'm a pretty darn good historian and know a lot about what the founders thought. I think they would be just absolutely dumbfounded by the way Congress has just handed over so much power to the president and state legislatures have handed over so much power to the governors and all these various bureaucracies, alphabet agencies to run every aspect of our lives. Uh, I think they would be dumbfounded that legislatures just openly handed over all this power. Yeah. To the executive branch. Right. And so, yeah, I think that's something that would just 
stunned them to be blatantly honest with you. Yeah. Well, and, and well, and I think this comes back to what, what we were talking about earlier about, you know, Marbury versus Madison when they packed the courts, then FDR trying to pack the courts. Now the Democrats are trying to, are threatening to pack the courts um, when they, when they're in power. And this, this is in order to continue their, you know, their reign of terror, you know, so to speak about expanding the role of the executive and, and making sure that they have the judicial branch backing up these decisions of the executive branch being, uh, being more, more powerful in their direction. And what I've been hearing is conservative media come back and say, okay, well, we're going to treat this the exact same way we treat the nuclear. We treated the nuclear option. If you're going to pack the courts when you're in power, the next time we're in power, we'll pack the courts. So yeah, you go ahead and add, you know, five more justices and make it, you know, make it 14 or make it 15 and then we'll make it 20. We'll make it 21. Mm-hmm, then you can yeah. make it 25. Then we'll make it 33. And it'll just be this complete tit, tit for tat. Before long, it's going to be 328 million justices and 1 million citizens. I mean, like, you can't keep going on like this. But you were talking about the number of justices and that that nine isn't the special number. And that there, and, and you're right. I know that you're correct because there's not a number specified in the Constitution of how many justices there are. So, can you expand on that some? Yes, in our history, we've had as few as five and as many as ten. There is no set number in the Constitution. Uh, for many, uh, that was one of the things of uh, after the the two th- the not the 1801 election where the Jeffersonians were going in, the Federalists were going out, they come up with a Judiciary Act of 1801 that they got passed right before Jefferson took power, where they tried to set a a hard limit, where they basically just appointed a bunch of new ones and then said, no more, there's not going to be allowed to be any more. And basically that got declared unconstitutional. Uh, For a long time, they had settled on the number seven, Mm -hmm. which is kind of like seven days of the week. There's number seven kind of like there's a a lot of the magnificent seven and so forth uh, of why there's seven. And so for several decades, there were seven Supreme Court justices. And... uh, like most things in American history, the Civil War had a big, huge impact that in order to finance the Civil War, basically the federal government had to just print money, okay, mm-hmm. fiat currency. And I know that you have a certain fondness for my former economics professor, Murray Rothbard. Uh, so you will appreciate the fact that there was a legal challenge about whether or not the federal government could just merely print money. And the seven members of the Supreme Court under Salmon Chase said, no, the federal government could not just merely print money. That according to the Constitution, currency was gold and silver coins. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, after the Civil War, of course, they had this massive debt. How were they going to pay it off? Well, 
they came out with, uh, they decided that they were going to have a new Judiciary Act. And because we had nine circuit courts, it only made sense that we should have nine Supreme Court justices and each justice should go and run when the Supreme Court of the United States, we call it SCOTUS by the way, stands for Supreme Court of the United States, so the, the Supreme Court justices, when they're not in session, they can go ride their little circuits. They can get in their little, you know, rail cars and go here, the hither yonder throughout the heartland and make rulings. So therefore there should be nine Supreme Court justices. Right. Makes perfect sense, right? Mm -hmm. Well, lo and behold, the two justices that were nominated by Ulysses S. Grant they took a look at the legal tender case and said, you know what, our brethren, they were wrong. We can, it is perfectly constitutional for the federal government to just print up money to pay off debts from the Civil War. Amazing revelation, right? <laughs> so, you know, that's, so that can't, got, came down with what we call the legal tender cases where the Supreme Court just basically just did a complete 180 flip and just purely coincidental, right, that the two, or at least Murray Rothbard's argument is, are you gonna tell me it was just purely coincidental that these two Supreme Court justices that they pointed up just happened to suddenly change their opinion? <laughs> no, it's crap, it's crap. <laughs> okay, so, so, yeah, but ever since then, we've had nine Supreme Court justices. And of course, right now we have 13 circuit courts and of course, we can't possibly expect these great icons of legals, you know, to like do something as lowly as like get on an airplane and travel around the countryside to make legal opinions. Right. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, like I said, it's it's been a radically different. Uh, the Supreme Court has taken a radically different direction. But uh, like I said, Murray Rothbard's position was they they created nine justices for the specific of intent of overturning the position on whether or not fiat currency was constitutional yeah that, that doesn't shock me oh uh, they they really like their they really like that ability to print money that's you know that to me that is probably the most powerful thing that the the u.s government does is and by the way, have you money. ever heard them ask one single federal judge, what's your position on the legal tender cases? No, I don't think I've ever heard that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the late but I do know that I do know that Brett Kavanaugh likes beer. So, okay. I mean, is that, that's a qualifier. Oh, of course, yes. <laughs> if you like beer, you're okay in my book. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I personally, when I quit smoking, I found I had to quit drinking. So, uh, you know, uh, that's uh, a sacrifice I had to make in order to save my lungs. Yeah, that's probably <laughs> something I'm going to have to look at here shortly. Um, yeah. Okay. So, like, you were, uh, you wanted to tie the the Supreme Court back to natural law. Um, in in your notes, you had a you had a little sidebar about that what one of the things i wanted to ask about though is what is do you all right so do you equivocate natural law and common law not entirely there is a lot of overlap between uh common law and natural law 
Mm-hmm. Uh, the reason why we have common law is because when the uh, the Normans basically conquered England, uh, they had like all kinds of different laws for different regions and York. You know, this this is what was legal in York. This is what was legal in Suffolk and so forth and so forth. Right. And so the Normans come up and it's like, no, we're going to have one common law that applies to uh, everybody in the realm. Right. And and included in that was uh, what evolved as consti- what we now call constitutional law, saying this is the limits on the king's power of what the king can and cannot do. Mm-hmm. And so there was a uh, big series of, of opinions that had came down from various justices in England of British common of British constitutional law. What what does it constitute to be a British citizen? And so when the American colonists started saying that the British government was violating their constitutional rights, the uh, the British governors basically said, well, yeah, but you're colonists, so you have no constitutional rights. And so people like John Adams kept saying, yes, we do. And the British kept like, no, you don't. And ultimately, Thomas Paine come up with his in his pamphlet, Common Sense, and he's kind of like, where is this constitution that people like John Adams are talking about? All right. It's kind of like, you show me, show me where it is. When you talk about when I go looking for it, I can't find it. So as far as I'm concerned, it don't exist. Mm-hmm. And so that really was what spurred a lot of in the United States of America to have a written constitution that was handed out so people could actually hold it and read it and discuss it. And so that's kind of like where America kind of went in a uh, different direction. And a big part of the reason why we do have a written constitution now that you guys like you and I can sit and talk about. And yeah, so uh, natural so, law principles, oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say, I was just gonna make a little snide comment that Thomas Paine looked at the constitution like we look at the social contract. Thomas Paine was an interesting character. <laughs> I, I, I love Thomas Paine. Like, it, I love reading his stuff. Like, he's one of my favorites. Yeah, he's he's of of all the uh, the the founders, I would have to say Thomas Paine's probably my favorite too. That uh, the main thing when it comes to legal principles is is that, like I said, there's the the idea of natural law rights that are natural rights that are basically given by a supreme power not handed down by government versus the argument of uh, like all rights come from the government that you have basically you're not entitled to anything that the government doesn't say you're entitled to uh the the technical term is the legal positive disposition that the law is basically whatever the legislature says the law is and whatever it's been enacted well the problem with legal positivism is basically Adolf Hitler. Yeah. Uh, basically, everything the Nazis did, and the whole world acknowledges that what the Nazis did was evil. Problem is, is the law said they had the power to do it. And so after World War II, and uh, that, that was something when they was kind of like they were going to prosecute Nazis for war criminals, they had to come up with kind of like, you know what, we got to come up with some justification other than it was illegal. Because basically everything the Nazis did was perfectly legal. 
So that was really kind of what spurred the return of some semblance of natural law principles in our legal system. And I'm sorry to say, I'm just getting away from that now. Yeah. So it it really feels like, and that's kind of where I was going because I've had this conversation with, um, with, with conservatives before and they, they are more of a, especially nowadays, they seem like they're much more legal positivist than they are natural law um, advocates. And well, I can tell you that Justice Rehnquist was one of the most legal positives of them all. Uh, and actually, when they picked uh, William Rehnquist, the Nixon administration specifically picked Re- William Rehnquist to be on the Supreme Court because literally they, they was told that uh, this guy would have basically approve everything what the sheriff of Nottingham did to Robin Hood. Yeah. I mean, he, he, he was a, uh, he was a legal positivist on steroids. And uh, of course, now we all have to like bow and pray to the great image of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the great feminist <laughs> icon and so forth and so forth. Well, now there was some, there was a lot of things I agreed with Ruth Bader Ginsburg on. That woman never saw any reason whatsoever to limit anything the federal government did. Right. Not one single opinion did she ever even hint that anything that uh, that you know the federal government may not have uh, the uh, right to power to do anything. So let's kind of be clear on the record about uh, who Ruth Bader Ginsburg was in that regard. Mm-hmm. She was no natural law theorist in any shape, form, or fashion. So do you see any <clears throat> any justices on the court? that are are more um lean more to the natural law tradition uh Maybe gorsuch, gorsuch. I, I, the new one gorsuch yeah. uh, fairly new uh, gorsuch actually is one from what i'm seeing and uh he he definitely has some natural law elements to him that uh in his jurisprudence uh, Justice Roberts now is starting to show some signs that he's going to be what they call the swing votes on more issues. And he's he's actually trying to get the, take the court away from the blatant partisan politics. I don't know how successful he's going to be at it, but I, I will give him credit. And I, and I think and I think it is worth pointing out that uh Justice Roberts did just openly say the Korematsu case was a disgrace and was hereby, you know, renounced and overturned, never right. to be recited again. Kind of like y'all were bad, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and uh, and I I think there is something to be said for that. I was listening to um, uh, Stu Bergier, uh from uh, the Glenn Beck program the other day. And he had a he had a, a segment that popped up on YouTube, and I was like, oh, let's see what this this dude's talking about." Because I kind of I listen to a little bit of progressivism uh, in the progressive news ch- channels like Kyle Kalinske or Jimmy Dore, but I'll also check out conservatives and you know this, that, and the other, just trying to find out what they're saying and why they're saying it. And uh, he was saying that one of president trump's requirements is uh for his list 
of Supreme Court nominations is that they are they they disagree with Justice Roberts uh, on his past rulings. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised at that. I mean, let's let's be honest. Donald Trump is he's all about Donald Trump. Okay? Well, that's yeah. true, but he he's also the cons the conservative um, landscape don't doesn't really care for Justice uh, Roberts that much either. They you know they consider him a traitor, you know, since he's been appointed. Well, they considered Souter a traitor too. So that's, a, <laughs> that's a, but I, I will say from what I've seen of Gorsuch so far, I, I, I think that uh, there could be far worse Supreme Court justices than Gorsuch. Uh, now, and I know, you know, conversations you and I have had about qualified immunity that uh, Justice Sotomayor has come down very, very hard on qualified immunity. Uh, Justice Thomas has said that he's not wild about qualified immunity. Uh, I don't know if you've heard me talk about civil asset forfeiture, that they they did recently come in and uh, put some limits on the use of civil asset forfeiture. I think Justice Thomas played a major role in that. So, like I said, all the Supreme Court justices, when you read, start reading their opinions, you'll find that they're you love them on certain issues and you hate them on certain issues. It's really a thing that you don't know. Supreme Court justice kind of like uh, marriages. You know, you ever heard the line, don't really know somebody until you marry them? Yeah. That's, uh, trust me, I've, I've done some nasty divorces when I was a young lawyer. So, yeah, there's, <laughs> there's, uh, there's an awful lot of you don't really know, know a person until you marry them. And I think with Supreme Court justices, you really don't know until you put them in power. And that's one of the, another one of the reasons why I favor switching to a rotational system instead of the current system that we have. You want to you want to fill us in a little bit on what they've what they've uh, determined on asset forfeiture, because that is something I'm interested in. And I, I miss that. Well, the uh, the last opinion I came uh, that I read they had said that uh, under the excessive fines clause in the uh, in the Constitution, that they can only seize the statutory maximum. For example, on a uh, on a drug case, I will just say a state jail felony drug possession case, the maximum fine by statute is ten thousand mm -hmm. dollars. Okay. So basically, they can no longer seize a vehicle you know, allegedly used to transporting drug of, say, a vehicle's worth uh, $50,000, uh, they can't come up and seize the vehicle under civil asset forfeiture because the value is more than, than $10,000. So they did, that's pretty substantial uh, limitation because, I mean, as, as it was, as I've told you before, if I had the power to change one thing about our legal system, it would be civil asset forfeiture laws, which, oh, by the way, were put in place largely with Joe Biden, by the way. Let's not forget that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But uh, like I said, there, it was a just highly, highly abused system. So the Supreme Court did uh, a couple of years ago come up and said that uh, if the statutory maximum for the criminal offense is $10,000, the most you can seize is $10,000 or oh. property worth $10,000.
Right. So now, now is this going to, does this curb the ability of them confiscating $10,000 in cash without evidence that it, it is from, you know, drugs? Not that I'm aware of that. Uh, I, I haven't really kept up on anything recently. Okay. Basically, the uh, the courts had kind of sent the message before. It was kind of like, hey, you know, we're 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 looking out here. Now, I can tell you that a lot of time in law enforcement, when the the word gets out that the Supreme Court has kind of got their eye on a particular issue, uh, law enforcement will kind of kind of like, gee, do we really want to do this? Okay, so it's just kind of like, do we want to be the test case as it is to have to answer to the courts on that? So uh, the, the very fact that Supreme Court has even sent the message that they're looking at it and considering it, that, that by itself will have uh, quite an effect on how law enforcement does things. But uh, I haven't really kept up on recent developments uh, since that ruling has came down. Uh, I do very few federal cases now so uh, it hasn't really been a, a, that much of an issue, but uh, I, ca I can tell you that the, the, the low-level drug cases, it's not near as common anymore for them, because that, that was a big thing a few years back on the cases I was appointed on. They were going to take people's vehicles away from them uh, in, in low-level drug cases. And I have to tell the people, you know, hey, look, the case I'm appointed to really doesn't directly impact it. Now, the best thing I can tell you to do is like file an answer and challenge it, but you have to do it either on your own or you have to hire somebody to do that for you. That's beyond the scope of my appointment. I haven't had to do that near as much oh, okay. since that ruling came down. Well, I, I do remember, I don't, it was a few years back, I read a news story that it was something like uh, I think it was the state of Kansas had had confiscated more uh, more property from individual citizens than had been burglarized in the United States that year or something. Oh, like I wouldn't it. doubt that one. It yeah. was it was it was some crazy number though, and I can't remember all the details on it. But I, that was the first time it was ever brought to my attention about asset forfeiture and i was like wow what the hell is this you know like how can well i, I guarantee you donald trump is not going to ask perspective uh, supreme court nominees what's their position on civil asset forfeiture <laughs> okay uh i don't know if you ever saw the uh, the video that when he first got into office he there was a big photo op of him meeting a bunch of uh local sheriffs mm -hmm. and uh it got since got taken down by YouTube, but uh, one of the uh, sheriffs was in Rockwell County, Texas. I don't know if he was a truck driver is familiar with Rockwell County, Texas, uh, but he uh, this uh, this it is pretty obvious who this particular sheriff is. Uh, mentioned the fact uh, you know that somebody from the state legislature was giving him a hard time about civil asset forfeiture, and Donald Trump was kind of like. What, gonna take money away from bad people? What a spectacular idea. Oh, we need to encourage this. Yeah. And so, yeah, man, like I said, it was absolutely classic video uh, 
it, it got fairly quickly taken down. It, it was so it's such an embarrassment. Uh, yeah, but, I, but, I remember. I remember that. But uh, yeah, I don't. I don't know. He may ask. You know, with the with all the protests going on, you know, Black Lives Matter, uh, police reform is you know in in people on people's minds, and so he might you know ask people you know his uh his nominee what they think about qualified immunity and asset forfeiture but i don't think he's going to ask them for the right reasons you know? oh the wrong reason yeah yeah that's uh i i mean you saw what happened when justin amash former republican congressman proposed uh repealing qualified immunity how the Republicans in the House of Representatives just lined up against him, the, the party elites. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's no, it's pretty much no secret that the reason Justin Amash left the Republican Party was because he didn't get along with the party elites, the party leaders. Right. And uh, he saw there was no place for him anymore. Uh, I wish him well. I'm, I'm giving some thought to actually writing in Justin Amash for president just for the hell of it, you know. <laughs> so, <laughs> you may not be the only one there, there's i think there's a few people out there that probably feel the same way uh yeah he was he's one of the better you know uh politicians him and thomas massey you know uh i i always enjoy you know hearing uh thomas massey take take a bureaucrat to task that that never hurts my feelings too much but uh you know, there's a there's a couple of decent ones out there that are that at least try to be principled in some way, and even Rand Paul to an extent. You know, I mean. Well, I mean, my take on Rand Paul is he's not as good as his father Ron, but he's better than uh, most that's up there currently. I don't think by any, a long stretch. Yeah, I don't think anybody's as good as Ron. So that's a that's a hard label to live up to. You know, <laughs> that's it, a it high is. standard. So. Yeah. So, yeah, I, uh, I, I look back and I mean, I, I, I knew that Ron Paul really didn't have a chance to get the Republican nomination in 2008. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I supported him. And it's kind of kind of like it's it's a thing of it, it did not stun me that he did not get the nomination. But what did stun me was the fact that the Republicans didn't even allow him at the convention in 2008. I like that. I'm not saying they wouldn't allow him to speak. They wouldn't even let him in the building <laughs> in yeah. 2008. And so that pretty much sent a message to me of what the Republican thought party thought of people like me when they wouldn't even let allow Ron Paul even in the building at all in their convention. And uh, so, yeah, we're, we're that particular party. To me now, the Republican Party is a party with absolutely no principles at all. and for me, the two-party system is totally broken, uh, and the sad fact is I don't see it getting any better anytime soon. And to me, the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg just pretty much exaggerated now the the where the two-party system is headed. And you know, like you talked about, the the big fear, the lurking the, in law school, we refer to it as the lurking issue. Mm -hmm. is is that uh donald trump and the the, the red team senators they're going to jump up 
And by the way, if Donald Trump really truly believed he was going to win the presidential election, do you think he would be so, so gung-ho to put up a nominee? And if the, if the red team senators really truly believed that they were going to hold control of the Senate, do you really think they would be so, so enthusiastic to suddenly fulfill their constitutional obligation to uh, to approve a Supreme Court justice? No way. I don't know. No All right. So I, I can see your 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 point there. I can, I can see your where you're coming from. But, I, you know, one of the things that that Trump has is is a master at is showing everybody exactly how petulant and insane the entire system is you know what i'm saying that yes. i mean if 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 there's if there's any positive from trump's uh presidency it is the it is just revealing like pulling the curtain back and showing us exactly how insane and petulant these people are and he has a he has a way of knowing what buttons to push and I think just by talking about it, he is revealing the the parties and the quote unquote swamp for what it is. You know what I'm I'd saying? I'd say that. Yeah, I'd say. And, I agree and so with that. I I almost feel like it was intentional the way that he's gone about this by coming out. I mean, you I don't know if you saw the video, but I saw a video when he found out that uh ruth bader ginsburg had died and he had just gotten done um at a rally and one of the one of the journalists asked him what do you think of the death of ruth bader ginsburg and he's like i'm sorry this is the first i'm hearing of this are you are you serious and they're like yeah and he's like wow um yeah i'm really sorry to hear that she was an amazing woman you know uh, i'm really sorry mm -hmm. to hear that and and he just and that was kind of all he said about it and you could tell it was kind of like off the cuff because he was short on words. He didn't have anything to say, you know, and, and, you know, he's never short on words when he's ready to get in front of a camera. And, and it wasn't, it was the next day he's out there saying, okay, well, I'm going to appoint a new justice and I'm going to, I'm going to do it on Saturday. And so he has baited everybody in to this subject and this, subject matter for the entire week in 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 just completely revealing themselves you have nancy pelosi saying that she may you know consider impeachment because he's going to nominate a supreme court you know supreme court justice mm -hmm. you know things like that and he's just he has this way of revealing who they actually are and how broken the system actually is and i wouldn't be shocked because here's the thing it doesn't matter if he wins or loses the election in November. He's still the president until January 20th. So he knows that he doesn't have to get a Supreme Court justice approved before December 14th when the Electoral College legitimately, you know, picks the, the winner of the election, mm -hmm. no matter what's said on November 3rd. But well, my prediction, my prediction is the Senate, the Senate is going to drag out the actual confirmation vote until after the election, not because of Donald Trump, but because of the Republican senators running for re-election. 
that they see that it would be such a divisive issue that uh, I, I, I personally believe that Mitch McConnell is going to drag out the actual confirmation. So I think Donald Trump is going to nominate somebody. And you're right. He is the master of dominating the new cycle. I mean, he, he, uh, you know, on a scale of one to 10, he's, he's got like a grade of 25 when it comes to dominating <laughs> the news cycle. Well, yeah. And it kind so. of makes me wonder like what's going on outside of the Supreme court. Like, what are they doing? You know, at this particular moment, what are they doing that they don't want us to see? What are they able to slip by us? You know, just kind of like they slip the NDAA in every Christmas Eve or every new year's Eve or whatever, you know, what are they trying to slip by? you know, that they don't want people to know about. And, well, I think legal tender has a lot to do with what they're trying to slip by. <laughs> <laughs> being, being the good Murray Rothbard student that I, uh, that I was. Uh, yeah, that, there's, I uh, mean, you're right. There has been a lot of talk about another stimulus and this whole Nancy Pelosi won't, won't agree to the stimulus because she doesn't care about the American people. I mean, I've, I've heard that several times this week. You're right. So, so who knows? But it's kind of a, I just find it kind of interesting the way that uh, Trump approached it, and in that he that he's kind of like, yeah, I'll announce it on Saturday, when when he could have easily just not said a word about it and then just come out and announced it when he felt like announcing it. Yeah. But like you yeah. said, he just dominates the news cycle, and he knows he knows how to reveal these people. He knows what buttons to push and who they are. So I don't know if he thinks he's going to lose. I don't think he has the the humility to think that he might lose. I, I just don't. I don't think that's oh, he's within his. Yeah, I don't think that's in his personality. That just the uh, the option in in his psyche just doesn't strike me as as even being a possibility in his mind. You know, but that's just kind of my read on him. So well, I think he's enough of a realist, though. And, and I suspect that there are people within what I call the American empire that have told him, you know, look, the decision has already been made. You're, you're not going to have a full second term. Uh, you know, don't, don't make any travel plans through Dealey Plaza. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, well, I mean, I, I think he's enough of a realist to know just kind of like, you know, if, if, if you know, I'm not going to sit here and say, like, "Well, I'll, I'll make that decision after after I win the election in November," and I think he's already planting the seeds with the whole uh, mail-in ballot uh, fraud situ, you know, argument. But like, like I said, to me, if he truly, truly believed that he was definitely going to win the the the, the reelected. I, th I think he would put put this whole nomination process off until after the election. I believe that the that he is going to nominate somebody. I think that the red team senators are going to conduct a hearing with the judiciary committee, and then but they'll they'll actually drag out the votes to whether or not to confirm until after. Now I will say this: I I, I was totally opposed to the the blue team using filibuster for judicial nominees. I, I think that was disgraceful when they did that. To me, a nominee deserves to have a vote. Whether 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 they're approved or not, I, I do feel like a nominee is entitled to have a vote before yeah. the Senate. So I, I am opposed to when the when the blue team used to filibuster 
uh, Bush's nominees automatically. I felt like that was disgraceful. Well, and, and, but I mean, and then and see, this is what I this is what I keep trying to explain to the Democrats that I know. I was like, y'all open this door. You know, th this was Mitch McConnell warned y'all when y'all used mm -hmm. the nuclear option that y'all were going to live to regret this. Well, we didn't. The nuclear option didn't didn't open up Supreme Court nominees. No, but it gave Mitch McConnell the excuse to use the exact same tactic to open up Supreme Court nominations to a simple majority. That's what. And it then did. they come back and said, "Well, we didn't intend that for Supreme Court justices." And my response is, so "That doesn't that that hound does not hunt." You yeah, can't exactly. Come up and say, it's perfectly okay to do it for new district court nominees and circuit court nominees, but oh, how dare you use it for uh, Supreme Court? If it's good nominees. for the goose, it's good for the yeah. gander. Yeah, like I said, that hound does not hunt. Yeah. And I can tell you, the finest judge that I have ever appeared in front of and done a trial in front of, I had a, I had talked to you one time about it. Uh, he's a uh, county judge in a rural county uh, in the Dallas area. And he told me point blank, he would never allow himself to be a nominee for a federal bench because of his family. He said that it has become such a contentious process now. He said, I would not put my family through a confirmation process for a federal bench. And I, I don't blame him. <laughs> I don't either. I don't either. I mean, you know, I mean, look at what happened with Kavanaugh. I mean, that was, that was insanity. Oh, yeah. And see, and that's what I think Trump is doing. I think Trump is trying to use this opportunity as leverage to win the election. I really do. I think he's trying to expose the just how petulant these people are and that he expects no matter who he names it to be just as much of a shit show as it was with Kavanaugh. And if the Democrats are pulling that kind of nonsense, you know, uh, right up to the election day, how many people are going to be turned off and not go out and vote for them because they're like, this is disgusting. Um, yeah. It could be. You it know, I mean, be. I just, I, I just don't put it past Trump to use every little, every little advantage he can find because like, like, like you said, like I said, he knows how to rule that, that media cycle and he knows how to push these people's buttons. I don't know. I don't understand how this far into into his presidency, they're still falling for it. You know, like it just makes no sense to me. At some point, you would think you'd be like, wait, he keeps doing this. Like we have to mm -hmm. quit reacting. You know, it's, it's kind of like the old Peanuts cartoon where Lucy holds the football for Charlie Brown. Yeah, she swears up and down. She's not going to pull the football away this time when he tries to kick it. And so Charlie Brown runs up to kick the football and Lucy again pulls the ball away. And yeah. Charlie Brown falls on his butt. It's like, how many times have we got to realize that you can't trust Lucy to hold on to the ball? Okay? <laughs> right. Yeah. It's, it's just, it just, I, I just can't believe that they're still falling for it. I'm like, that's what makes it even funnier. It's like, y'all just can't help yourselves. Mm -hmm. yes. you're, you're so threatened by not being in power that you just can't help yourself, you know, and it, it makes it really transparent. And I'm not saying that Donald Trump isn't power hungry, but it makes it extremely transparent for the rest of them, you know, including Republicans. I'm not even talking about just Democrats. I mean, look at Mitt Romney, you know, 
he's just as bad as all of them, you know? Well, I think the main thing of Justice Roberts has snapped on is the fact that uh, this, if, if things continue down the path, the Supreme Court is going to become nothing more than just another petty partisan body. Yeah. And I think Justice Roberts has snapped on that. That, uh, you know, uh, you know, like you talked about, if, uh, you know, if the Democrats jump up and say, you know, we're going to support, we're, we're going, when we get in power, we're going to appoint two new justices to the Supreme Court. And then the Republican, the red team, I call them the blue team and the red team. So the red team, they get back in power. And so they jump up and they're going to appoint four new justices. And next thing you know, we're going to have like uh, basically 300 Supreme Court justices that act like just a giant super legislature. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be a disaster when that happens. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I, I just think that tit for tat is... is is ridiculous and i just look at it and i'm like that's all this is that's all it is now it's just yeah. like you know uh your team did it so my team's gonna do it you know and it's i just it just it's such a turnoff to me i just, just can't stand it so you got the days when uh the days when uh 90 percent of the senators voted for a scalia and a ruth bader ginsburg those days are over oh yeah yeah no yeah. absolutely you got any uh, closing thoughts? Uh, we've been going over an hour now. No, I think I pretty much covered everything I wanted to cover. Anything you uh, you think I missed on? Nah, nah. You're you're much more versed on on the judiciary than I am. I just well, kinda... take a look at those legal tender cases. Uh, you and your listeners, I I I think y'all get a kick on taking up the uh, looking into the history of the legal tender cases and see if you think Murray Rothbard's argument uh, has merit or not. I tend, I tend to just to just uh, just agree with him, I, yeah, but I will look at it. You would have loved it. You you would have truly loved it. You really would have. Yeah, I I just kind of tend to think that he he is a little more honest in his assessment than uh, most most people are. Yeah, so I'm like, well, even if he may be wrong on a couple of things, at least I know where he's coming from, and he's coming from a good place. So I just kind of like, ah, oh, well, you know. But yeah, I'll That's definitely right. look at those. I appreciate you coming on, Michael. It was it was a fun conversation. Enjoy it, Tommy. Take care of yourself. Stay safe on the roads, okay? All right, buddy. We'll talk to you later. All right, bye bye. Bye. All right. Well, that was Michael Harris. I'm Tommy Salmons. Sorry if there were any audio problems. I will definitely get through and try to clean up as much as I can before releasing this. Late.